0: They change of the thinking, change the mind, change the pathway, change the life. When you come here, the alcohol and drugs are a given. They're a given. There's no way you're going to ever drink again.
1: Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today, I'm with Dr. Rob Kelly, CEO and founder of the Rob Kelly Recovery Group. Rob, thanks for being here.
0: Oh, My pleasure, absolutely, Trevor. Good to be here.
1: So before we get into what you do and all, all the good works that uh, the Rob Kelly Recovery Group does, uh, let's, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and let's hear a little bit of your story.
0: Well, uh, my name's Dr. Rob Kelly. I'm, a, I'm an addiction doctor, specializing in neuroscience and neuroplasticity. Um, uh, neural pathways that kind of stuff Um, uh, been in the industry for about 27 years started drinking at the age of nine uh, a musical family awesome musical family but i took my first drink on stage which uh which determined the rest of my life i know that now but i didn't know it then
1: yeah.
0: uh but when i took my first drink it was just unbelievable It was on stage in liverpool back in the, the uk and i drank this half a beer and my whole life just changed right there and then i knew But from now on, this was my solution to life. And it was for a long time. During my teens, I could speak to girls. Uh, I got a job at Abbey Road in London playing bass and had some amazing jobs. Always been a very high earner. And then got married, kids, which we will go into later, and then uh, become homeless and then worked my way back and then came to uh, Texas about 13 years ago. And now I'm living the dream instead of dreaming a living. I have five practices around the world. I'm also a TV doctor and uh, radio, I have radio shows and stuff. So yeah, life is good today, but it wasn't always like that. But today, life is awesome.
1: Wow, five offices around the world, huh?
0: Yes, uh, I'm an alcoholic, so I don't do things by half. (laughs) It's either all in or it's all out.
1: Where are they located?
0: One in Dallas, one in San Antonio, one in Zurich, one in Spain, and uh, one in England, Manchester.
1: Amazing. Think about all the thousands and thousands of people you help all the time. That's, uh, that, that's, that's fantastic.
0: I think, we can, I think we had a I count up last week. Over the last 20-something years, uh, I've worked with about 500, almost 6,000 people around the world, which has just been amazing. Wow. I, 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 kind of, I, don't, I don't look at it as a job. I look at it as a passion. And uh, i always say that what I do for a living is not what I do for a living you see all the TV I do on the box and stuff and the high profile people that we work with keeps my wife happy and pays a mortgage. What I do is I work with that chronic alcoholic in the trenches after my homelessness. I'll never forget the trenches and that's where I like to be. And that's where I feel most comfortable to be honest.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so how long you been sober?
0: Uh, 1988 is my, uh, is my date that uh, I love. And uh, I never usually give the dates out because i think that sure it's a it's a good message that anybody who has a day sober can help somebody else who hasn't that's right. what i always say
1: no so
0: you that. know i've worked with some guys i've heard stuff of some guys with three days sober that's blown my mind you know that i've worked with in the last you know like uh, going forward some of the stuff i learned from that guy right Phenomenal.
1: So yeah and it's great to to you know when you're in a uh, 12-step meeting you go into a room and you know, somebody will have five years or 10 years or 20 years, but you, the biggest cheers you get are for those people that have 24 hours. Yeah,
0: definitely. Definitely. Right. Love them, guys.
1: Right. Because it takes it takes courage to enter that first meeting. And uh, I remember my first time that I went, I think I went to two or three and pulled into the parking lot and didn't have the courage to go in and, and sped away. But uh, yeah, it takes courage to go into that first one.
0: It does. I remember one of my first meetings. I was in Manchester. Um, I went down to London on business and I went to a, a meeting. I needed, I wanted to drink. So I called the office, the London office, and I asked them where the new meeting was. And they kind of directed me. So I went around there in the car and they said it would be a church and that you'll see the AA in the church. What I didn't know is they, they thought they've said to me, you'll see the AA sign. So I pulled up in a church and I could see through the big windows and there was a bunch of people sat around in a circle. So I thought, cool. So I clocked the car and went bolting in and I thought, I've never said it before, but I'm going to tell everybody I'm an alcoholic. So I burst through the door. Everyone looked at me. I sat down. Nobody was speaking. So I said, hey, my name's Rob. I'm an alcoholic. And I felt absolutely relieved until the woman at the front of the table said, well, that's all well and good, my dear, but this is the knitting circle <laughs> on a Tuesday night. The AA meeting is at the back of the church. And so it was, but yeah, for the followers of signs, not the people, I would have, I would have ended up in the right place. First of all, <laughs>
1: <laughs> the knitting group. Well, Hey, you know, you made some friends in that group too, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I got, I got a nice, a nice jumper out of it. A nice put a nice cardigan. No, yeah. no, I didn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the highlights of the services you provide. And I I want to start with your, just your overall philosophy.
0: Our philosophy is no matter how far down the scale you've got, you can recover from this stuff. We believe it's not a drinking problem. It's a thinking problem. So let's take the symptom, which let's look at the disease of addiction. Let's take the symptom out of it. Symptom can be alcohol, drugs, sex, food, sport, uh, whatever it may be. If we take that away, we're still left with a disease which centers in my brain. So we believe that you are born an alcoholic, period. You can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic. It's an impossibility. Now, drug addiction is a little different. You can take enough drugs to become addicted, but with alcohol, it reacts to the brain differently. So we believe 10 years ago in the medical fraternity that neuroplasticity is the way to go with addiction. We believe once we change neural pathways away from self-sabotaging neural pathways, that we can change the way you think and you can change the way you live from there. And it goes, it goes way beyond that. It goes, let's forget the alcohol and drugs and everything else. Let's look at what sort of life you can accomplish without because the addicted brain is one of the most smartest brains I have ever studied because we, once we get clean and sober, we can achieve almost anything. If that's anything we want to achieve because the, I, I teach my guys, you know, don't put a cap on anything. Absolutely. Shoot for your dreams and make sure they happen. And and most people do, including me.
1: Right. The problem is not our drinking, it's our thinking. I love that quote. And uh, a story I read, which I think is just says so much about that, is when you were at the liquor store and withdrawals and got that bottle of booze and put it on the table to buy it. And your shaking stopped because it was already, your mind was already at rest, the fact that you had the alcohol, but you didn't take a drink. And that was, uh, that might've been one of the last times you did, but it is, it's, it's, um uh, it's the way our mind works. It, 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 it's a, it's an innate born thing, but for some reason it is just overdrive all the time. And it, right. You, you take the, you know, I've, since I've stopped drinking and doing drugs, you know, food has become an issue for me um and it's just it's it doesn't matter what the substance is like you said it's our mind it's overactive and we just have to we have to just uh train it to uh know that it doesn't need that to function
0: well that's the thing that most people fall into think that if you stop drinking um i'm not going to pick up another addiction well of course you are and it'd be a self-sabotaging addiction most people say well the gym's a good addiction well if you go to the gym three times a day. And burn yourself out, it's not so good. So, everybody has an addiction. It's just about if you can change your thought patterns around that addiction, then you can moderate the good addictions and completely get away from the bad addictions. Uh, but you need to know what you're doing. Neuro linguistic programming and psychology is what I use. 95% of our work is done online, telehealth, um, through a HIPAA uh, compliant software. But yeah, you've got to concentrate, forget the alcohol. Most people concentrate on the alcohol. If we can just stop drinking and we'll teach you relapse prevention, it's like, what the hell are you doing? It's got nothing to do with that. Alcoholism has got very little to do with alcohol and drug addiction has got very little to do with drugs. And the quicker you understand that, and I have a self-sabotaging mind and that the fact is I'll never be blonde enough, tall enough, thin enough or rich enough, then you have a good understanding of the way the addictive brain works. And then you can start repairing that brain not to think like other people, but you can repair it so that you start to succeed in life. And therefore, you have to really concentrate to self-sabotage these days.
1: Right. So neuroplasticity. Let's. Uh, why don't you give us the, the book definition and let's talk about that a little bit because that's very interesting.
0: Well, 10 years ago, we found out that the brain's like plastic. We can remold ideas. We can remold the future and the way we think about the future in our brain. So we've got billions of neural pathways going through. Where repetition, strengthens and confirms new neural pathways, which means if I if I learn a new skill, for instance, if I want to fly a plane, I need to do 1,500 hours before I can fly a commercial plane. So that repetition, strengthens and confirms build new neural pathways that I can recall at drop of a hat. So it's why we can get into a car, we can reverse down the driveway whilst talking on the phone, whilst listening to the radio, whilst waving to our partner driving away. It's because all the neural pathways are set. With addiction, what we need to do is re them. And over a period of time, it's not going to be done straight away. It's usually 90 days before the chemicals in the brain start to reset themselves. So during that period, we're planting stuff in to the subconscious brain where the disease really exists. So Once we plant things into the uh, unconscious brain, like sayings and phrases and repetition of certain words in different formats. It's a bit like a psychometric test. The disease doesn't know that we're doing this. Otherwise, it would block it straight away. And what happens is we teach people to change the way they think and also watch for their behavior change. Because alcoholism never comes to anybody on a Monday and goes, hey, Billy, let's start drinking today. It's always a week or a month before when my behavior changes and my old style sabotaging your pathway start coming into play again. Now, you can't see that unless you know what you're looking for. So when, when the alcoholic's in the bar pounding his hand on the bar saying, how the hell did I end up here again? Because they've just gone through a blank mental spot. That's the way neuroplasticity works. It has to be a knee-jerk reaction into self-care and healthy habits. It can't be a knee-jerk reaction as it is today into self-damage and self-harm.
1: So somebody, no matter how damaged they are, you feel can come all the way back.
0: There's a certain point when you can't, I mean, the, the, the layman term is wet brain, but apart from that, definitely, I mean, my mind was gone. I tried to commit suicide six times and on two occasions I succeeded and they brought me back to life. I was done. I didn't want anything. And the guy that taught me my stuff, which later I went back to university and, and, and studied uh, behavioral science um that's the guy he took me through the deal i changed my mind completely that i wanted to live and i wanted to succeed and i wanted to help other people and i just become kind of another person because you know in the 12 steps room was when i when i worked the book and by the way i've been i've been in university and schools for over 20 years studying and i've studied carl young and all the greats and the best piece of literature for recovering for the alcoholic is the first one six four of the Alcoholics big book period so I used that, and when I did, I had a psychic change and a spiritual awakening. What happens when, I, when that happens to me? My DNA changes. That's my findings. Look it up on Google. My DNA changed. But why is that important? Because the book said the same man will drink again. So if you don't change, you don't change. There's no point in taking an alcohol away from an alcoholic because you're still left with an alcoholic. You have to change the person you are. The DNA has to change, and if it doesn't, you will relapse. If you're the real alcoholic or addict.
1: Right. I'm a huge mental health guy. And with behavioral sciences and beha- you know, behavioral health is becoming a term that is uh, becoming more widely used, you know, coupling addiction with mental health. Do you believe that the majority of people that have an addiction issue have an underlying mental health concern?
0: Oh, 100 percent. Without doubt. There's a couple of things that's happening. I'd like to call it mental injury not a mental illness. Mm -hmm. Mental injury, of course, exists because the addiction is a mental disease. But secondly, whenever there's alcoholism, there is always trauma, and it's always childhood trauma. So what happens is when you're born, you're born as an alcoholic, let's say, so you have the self-sabotaging neural pathways ingrained, and the remapping of the brain as I'm brought up in a childhood that my parents used to say to me, don't do that, you stupid idiot. You're not clever enough to go to grammar school. You'll never be as good as your brother. That, that remaps my brain. Together, it causes that mental injury that if left untreated, I will either go insane or I will take my own life, period.
1: Trauma is is often overlooked, but it's, it's so right. I mean, 100% may be accurate. Because it is, there's always, and trauma comes in so many forms.
0: That's the thing as well, trauma, is how do we define trauma? Well, I've only studied the addictive brains. So I can't speak for the layman normal brain if there is such a thing. But I know the addictive brain. How we define trauma is anything less than nurturing as a child is child abuse. Because all these sayings, the old nursery rhyme we used to sing at school Uh, you know, the sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a complete lie. Of course, words have the power to kill me. When the mind hurt me, so I've got to be real careful, you know, of that childhood abuse, because it will repeat itself. I'm always less than. I spoke in California about four or five years ago. There was exactly 1,000 people allowed into the auditorium, so I knew exactly how many people were there. After I finished, it's customary for the group, To come up and shake your hand and say thank you. It takes about 45 minutes for all of them to come through. 999 Trevor said it was amazing. One guy said it was terrible. Have a guess for the next three months who I focused on and obsessed about and nearly relapsed on. The one guy. Now that sums up my addictive brain. So I have to be careful that I surround myself with people that lift me up and not put me down because Alcoholics are very sensitive, even though, I mean, if you see me in real life, I'm 270 pounds. I'm an ex bodybuilder. I'm an ex street fighter. You wouldn't mess with me if your life depended on it. But you know something? If you said something to me, you could destroy me. You don't know that, but you could do. Because all I want deep down inside with my inner child is I want you to like me. And it's still with me today. And that's the mental injury. That's the childhood abuse that I suffered because I never thought I fit in. And I realized today, And this is what makes my life better. Let's forget the alcohol. I'm never going to be blonde enough, tall enough, thin enough, or rich enough, period. And I need to know that as an alcoholic, because that's what I'm all striving for. I remember when we first practice in in Dallas, and I said to my wife, you know, if we could just, just get $100,000 in the bank, in our checking account, man, I would be so happy. I would never worry about money. My life would be made. Do you know when we got a hundred grand, I'm thinking of two hundred? And then when we got two hundred, I'm thinking hundred, I've got almost a million dollars in my checking account. Do you know what I'm thinking about? What if I go broke? Maybe 1.1 1. 1 would be better. It's right. crazy. But that's how the mind works. But the understanding of that gets me through. True
1: words. True words are spoken. And um and and you can and people also need to understand that, you know, I grew up in a home where there was nothing but love. I mean, love and no sort of abuse or neglect of any kind, <clears throat> but I suffered multiple head injuries, so trauma comes in so many different forms, and it's it, it it can bring us to the same exact place, having different backgrounds, different upbringings. but you know trauma in your childhood, just like you just talked about uh, can can really wreak havoc on your life
0: yeah. <clears throat> definitely it does um, it does
1: okay so the majority of people that work for you are in recovery themselves is that right
0: all of them apart from my wife who's, uh, who's the director of operations and, and runs the office but uh, her brother was a chronic alcoholic <clears throat> who when I met her the first story she told me was uh, eight months ago before she met me her brother was at an, uh, a party at their house and he's obviously an alcoholic he wasn't drinking and made arrangements to meet them the next day to go out for dinner went home his wife and kids at home quietly walked in the garage picked a gun up and shot himself in the head and killed himself you know with no 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 anything whatsoever signs of doing that and that's again mental injury and it's also alcoholism you know so <clears throat> she, she's the only person that hasn't done really suffered but she has family that has but that's a requirement for me to a certain degree because I truly believe, and this is my opinion, guys, if you go to college for a year or two years and you get a counselling degree, stick to people that you can counsel. Alcoholics and addicts are a different breed. Unless you've been there and done it, you can't counsel me. You know, you have to have been there. My counsellor is a 75-year-old woman, an ex-drug addict and street girl, who's really brought herself back to to reality and done well for herself. She's my counsellor. Now, she can relate to me and I can relate to her. And that's very important. So I, I try and insist that all my guys know something about recovery, if not been there.
1: Right. And you know, I've been in therapy since I was six, and I didn't find one that worked until I was 37 and got sober. And guess what? That person was 14 years sober. So yeah. being able to relate is you know, and and psychologists and psychiatrists, I mean, they all serve a purpose and have their place and are excellent at what they do. But adding that part in that have been having been there for me. And I think for most people is invaluable. And and I think the fact that it's a requirement is a beautiful thing because it's just, it's another level of being able to get to the root of the problem quicker because you got, You've got trust and respect the moment you walk through the door.
0: You see, a lot of people still think that uh, we have a choice over alcohol, you know. My dad was, I mean, he still believes today. uh, If I would only just give up for my kids or for my wife or for my sanity or to embarrass the family, and I could never understand why I couldn't. You see, this is one of the reasons why I got into it because I, I couldn't understand, you know. I mean, I, I lost everything. I ended up on the streets. I spent over a year on the streets. And it was only that that I broke down one morning and started to cry. And the reason I was crying is not because I just lost, or a year ago, lost my kids, which I didn't see for 20 years, or my wife or my houses. The first time I realized, I couldn't stop drinking. Now, that's not a choice. So I, I studied the brain and found out that the hypothalamus at the back of the brain, which is the fight or flight part of the brain, uh, it tells babies that they need food. And drink water, and it also tells the human being to drink water and eat food to survive. It's a survival instinct. You know that's why you see a baby, oh, sticking his fingers in his mouth. He knows to eat, even at the age of three months or three days. It knows it needs to eat, and it cries to get fed. With my with my brain, my hypothalamus tells me to drink alcohol. That's why I can go weeks or months without touching water or food when I was when I was drinking. Because my brain's not interested in that. My brain's telling me to drink. It'll be different this time. You'll get away with this time. No, no. I was standing in a hospital once. I'm in a hospital bed, and the doctor is about two inches from my nose, and he's looking me in the eye, and he said, "Listen to me, Doctor Rob. If you ever take alcohol again in any form whatsoever, you will not make it to this hospital in the ambulance. You will die in the ambulance. Am I making myself clear?" And while he's saying this, I'm looking over his shoulder at the clock, thinking, well, the liquor store closes at eleven. So if I get out here for the next 30 minutes, I can get to the liquor store before it closes. I mean, that's insane. That's not a choice. That's pure insanity. You know, if if when I was on the streets, if you had to put a double whiskey on the bar and a gun and said, if you take the whiskey, you've got to shoot yourself, I'd take the whiskey every time. And then shoot myself. That's not a choice. And one of my biggest things today around the world globally is to educate people that you know if you now there's a difference Trevor, between the 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 friday night drunk and the friday night alcoholic one of them needs to go to jail the other needs treatment and that's one of my things is the heavy drinkers and the abusers do what you want with them and they're not in our category they have a choice they can moderate or stop given a sufficient reason i can't do that and other chronic alcoholics can't do that You know, it's something that's ingrained with us that we cannot stop. It's beyond our human capabilities to stop drinking once we have started. You see, the only thing that ended with me was jail, hospital, on two occasions, death. That's the only thing that would stop me. I couldn't stop because I was on the streets and it was bad luck. No, I I would hurt people and steal their wallets to make sure I could drink because it's the only thing I was thinking of, but while I'm down in a liter bottle of vodka, I'm I'm already thinking where the next liter is going to come from. And people who I work with, as in they counsel me, need to know that. They need to understand that, hell, this is not my fault. I didn't have a choice in this. And yes, you can fully recover. You see, alcoholism is a bit like food poisoning. There's no cure for either But we can take a few simple steps to make sure I never get food poisoned again, which is watch the date on the meat, never refreeze something that's already frozen. The doctor told me that years ago, I've never had food poisoning since. And it's the same with alcoholism. I take a few simple steps today to make sure that I don't have alcoholism. And it seems to work pretty well.
1: Now, you're a somatic experience practitioner. Can you explain what that is to us?
0: Somatic experience has been around for a long time, but I I went to the Meadows for about five weeks for for PTSD some years ago, and they they introduced me to somatic experience, which basically is listening to your body and feeling your body through your addiction. You see, what happens is alcoholism never comes to me on a Monday night and goes, hey, Rob, let's have a drink tonight. Never does that. It's always a week or a month before, and what it tells you to watch for signs, like, a real blatant one is a gut feeling. Now, people say, I should have followed my gut feeling. There's a real reason why that gut feeling is there, and it goes back to the tribal days, is when somebody in the tribe would get the gut feeling that there was danger here. They'd wake the rest of the tribe up, and they'd be ready, or they would run. Today, we don't take no notice of that. We just think it's a gut feeling is just like, I don't know, it's just a feeling. It's not worth taking notice of. You have to track your body. A week or a month before you pick up a drink, your body will change. The gut feeling your chest will change your, your stomach will change your, your, your arms will change the neck and the head will change and you have to start listening to that body to make sure that you catch that rel- that uh, relapse and it also relieves tension and it's, it's such a great tool to have in in your box uh, when, when you're actually working with people recovery people or not it's just a great tool to have when, when you know something's coming or your body starts to react, you know that your mind is going to follow. So this is my this is my thing. It, the, the, the subconscious brain is where the proper addiction lives, the alcoholism. When, when it starts to say, hey, let's have a drink, I don't know about it because my subconscious brain, but my body will change. If I can spot it there while my body's changed, before it goes up to the prefrontal cortex, the conscious brain, I stand a chance of not relapsing. You see, the prefrontal cortex has one job and that's to come up with a solution as quick as possible to my problem. The only problem, going back to the hypothalamus, is my prefrontal cortex picks alcohol every single time unless I catch it in my body. And by the time it goes up to the conscious brain, I can start redirecting the neural pathways. What we also find, and this is my finding, is while you're living in the solution or doing a 12-step program or any other program, a church program, there's a period of about 7.3 seconds where you can redivert. And we timed this with about 500 people. Sometimes it was six, sometimes it was 10. The average was 7.3 seconds. That when it comes from my body up to my conscious brain, I, I have a choice now. Now I'm in recovery, following the program, spiritual awakening, psychic change. I have a choice where I can redirect the neural pathways away from self-sabotage into self-care, which stops me relapse every single time, 7.3 seconds.
1: All right. I mean, this is recovery. I mean, th- th- when people say sobriety and recovery, two totally different things. When you get into recovery, these are the things that you start to learn. These are the coping skills, which I think you're absolutely right. When you're armed with these things, you do then have a choice because you know what you're looking for. You know you know what uh, when it's coming and what you have to do to divert, just like you said. So th- th- this is great stuff. A lot of people don't realize how big of an issue this is for the family, the disease. This is a family disease. And I know family education is a big part of what you do. Give us your take on uh, the family portion of this.
0: So all sorts of recovery people have different languages. We teach them a different language is what we do. There's a whole different um, dialect from people in recovery. And this is what we need to do on a daily basis. So, our theory is if you go to a house where the person is suffering from alcoholism and the rest of the family think they're okay, and then you take them away into treatment or anything to come here, then you place them back and it's going to be hassle. And I'll tell you why. It's like the house. Everybody in the house speaks German. So what we do is we go over there, we get the guy out, we bring him to our place and we, we teach him how to speak Japanese, which is our recovery language, let's, for instance. So he's speaking Japanese and the house back home is still speaking German. Then we put him back in the house. They're either going to learn how to speak Japanese or he's going to go back to speaking German. Either way, it's going to be absolutely terrible unless you teach everybody in that house to speak Japanese at the same time. So the family is just important to us as the client, because once you take them back to the wife, the husband, the parents, they've got it. The parents have to be ready and our family program is really i still find it funny today because when a patient comes on board the 90 day program one hour a day is what we do with them the telehealth program we say to the parents or the wife or the husband you need to start working with us one day two days a month and they go oh yes we'd love to do that because they can't wait to get the you know little Johnny stories of of my son this and my son that and when the first day we go oh by the way this has got nothing to do with little Johnny this is all about you and it's all about being misunderstood and it's all about how you enable this alcoholic to keep drinking and it's all about you misunderstanding your part in this deal because you have a part and once we get into that the family realizes that they're just as sick as the alcoholic because it's a sick environment so it is a family disease but more importantly it's a family recovery process now we worked with a mom and dad two daughters in a family in the same house it's the first time we've ever done it, and I tell you that house, twelve years on, still going strong because they all talk to one another. And when somebody comes downstairs, they're going, "Have you done your morning work? You done your mirror work? Oh yeah. Oh, have you been to two meetings last week? Oh yeah." And and they bounce off each other because they're all speaking the same language. It's one of the most successful families we've ever had working with us because once we learn that the language, then everybody is on the same path, and it's very very important that people know about it. And I think if you're treating the alcoholic and and not treating the family, you're setting the alcoholic up for failure every single time. And when you look at our success rate, which is around 96, 97%, and you look at the treatment center model, which is about three to 4%, you have to think to yourself what's going on because we're the only company in the world that will give you your money back if you relapse while following our program. We have a money back guarantee is what we have. I don't see anybody else doing that. You know, if you're in this for the right reason, put your money where your mouth is, guys, in treatment centers. What, what's, kind of, what's your buy-in to this? And it really annoys me, this, where you see little Johnny going back to the same treatment center five times and still forking out $30,000 a month. Where's your buy-in? What are, you, what, what, are you, what are you offering here? What are you selling? Because you're not selling nothing. You're not selling nothing whatsoever. You're just taking money off people. And it's like a, it's like a revolving door. Spin, release, wash, out. Next month, they go back in again. It's like this is not necessary. The way you change, the change of thinking, change the mind, change your pathway, change your life. When you come here, the given, the alcohol and drugs are a given. They're a given. I'm gonna. There's no way you're gonna ever drink again. But let's start building your life. Let's start educating your family. Let's get you that job, that wife, that car, that house. These are the stuff that the addictive brain loves to conquer every single time. But people are talking about this. They're, they're talking about relapse prevention in treatment centers. What the hell is that all about? You're already telling the brain that they're going to relapse. So let's kind of prevent. No, the drink problem has been solved. It's end of story. What else are we going to do? Stop living in the past. Let's move forward and start to create a future. When I say thank you to somebody, dopamine starts flying around my my head. When I compliment somebody, dopamine is released into the brain. All this stuff we need to know to go forward, You know, to have an amazing life. It's not about me today. I don't go to meetings because I need a meeting. I go to meetings to bear witness to the still suffering alcoholic and people are empowered. Empowered people empower people. That's what we teach our patients. Go out there and empower somebody while you're getting your life and you, they can watch you get your life back together again and have an amazing life without alcohol and drugs because that's what it's all about today. Wow.
1: Amazing. Okay. So there's four key aspects that offer the best hope of recovery and that uh, you feel differentiate your firm. And I'm going to go through them here. First is fear-based thinking. Let's talk about fear-based thinking.
0: You know, most people out there make practical decisions based on fear. Fear is not real. Oh, I'm going to do this because it's a safe bet. I had a friend once many years ago when we was at school. His dad was a comedian. He used to go out every Friday and Saturday night to the clubs and he was pretty good, I must admit. But he was also an architect during the day. Well, what happened is Opportunity Knox. that was in London, it's an an English program, they invited him to come down and audition for this job, but it meant he'd have to go down there, work in the clubs at night times, you know, spend a week down there and probably hope he's going to become professional. What he did is he turned that down because he made a decision based on fear, and he decided to play the safe card and stay working his job. The guy that went down there became a multimillionaire household name in England called Freddie Starr. And the guy, my friend's dad got laid off from his job about four months later, which tells us that you might as well fail at something you don't want than fail at something you, 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 you do. You've got to go for your dream every single time because, and, and, and we don't because we're fearful. It's like when the, the most fearful thing in the world is public speaking. When I speak before I, I'm sick, I'm ill, I'm trying to control it. It's horrible. But when you step on that stage, it's gone. So is fear real or is it a figment of my imagination? What are we fearful of? Are we fearful of success? Are we fearful of failure? Because if you don't really care what anybody else thinks, then fear doesn't exist because you can do anything you want in life. So that's the fear aspect. We teach people try to not, not to fear, how to handle fear, how to recognize fear, somatic experience, how to deal with fear, and how to process it out of your body.
1: Next is behavior study. We've talked a little bit about this, but... Take us through your thoughts on behavior study.
0: Behavioral study, we can't miss out because it's the most important one. one of the most important aspects of recovery is. Uh, it's one of the reasons I went back to. Uh, I did a, a course at Southampton on behavioral science and got a PhD in behavioral science because I'm intrigued by it. I'm intrigued by the way we act, the way we think, the way we move, the way, and it's all tied together. And I think the more information we know about ourselves. The better I think the big box says to leave the body out of the disease is 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 drastic. It's shameful. We can't do it. It's the body and the mind working together. And once you do that, you understand the science behind that, and that's what we teach everybody. Uh, it becomes a lot better, and you can you can manage everything yourself once you recognize what you're going through and how you're going through. it. Because most of it's the central nervous system that starts to kick off. That's the thing we have to look for straight away. So the behavioral science part of it is absolutely very important.
1: One-on-one addiction recovery.
0: Yeah, I truly believe. And now this is my opinion. And it's just why we've got such a high success, rate. Right? It's a one-on-one. I'm speaking to you. You're speaking to me. The class doesn't need to know. Nobody needs to know, you know, what you're going through. Because what happens when we're, when we're, when we're talking to people and we're looking at the resentments and the grosser handicaps that we need to discuss, nobody's going to say that in an, in an open group. Nobody. They might say they do. Nobody does. You see, what I'm looking for when I'm talking to somebody about the past I'm looking at the grosser handicaps, the stuff you're taking to the the grave with you. That's what's keeping you sick. We we have to go back to what we call the scene of the crime, which go back in the childhood and start cleaning that stuff up. Because if you don't, that's going to be your relapse. It's not the alcohol. you know. It's a thinking around the past. It's thinking around the stuff that you've not not approached. Uncover, discover, discard. Unless you do that, it's like they they took a lot of people back to the Japanese concentration camps. And they asked one lady there, do you forgive them for what they did to her? And she said, no. And a prisoner next to her turned around and said to her, they still have you hostage then. You see, you have to clear that stuff up. You have to, it's vital. Vital means necessary to life. It's necessary to life that you go back and clear that up. Because if you don't, that's the stuff that kills you. It's not the alcohol. It's the complacency. It's the depression. It's the guilt, the shame, remorse around the past. You have to clear that up. So get back there. Have a one-to-one with me. You know, make sure we're we're telling each other secrets. You're telling me the stuff went to the grave. It's one-on-one. I'm inspiring. I'm empowered. Therefore, I'm empowering you. And when you come out of that, you can conquer the world because I'm believing in you while you're believing in me. And I think that connection with one alcoholic to another or one addict to another is absolutely vital for permanent recovery. Because when I'm talking few days, weeks or months, we're talking permanent recovery. You can't see this guys out there, but I have $100,000 in $100 notes on my desk. And this is to refund anybody that fails our program whilst continuing to follow exactly what we teach you to do. And I've still got this in 13, 14 years that I've been in the US, it's still set on my desk because nobody's claimed it, why? Because this one-to-one stuff works.
1: It's awesome. And finally, unobstructive living environment.
0: You know, that. that, well, we work on a lot of things around there. But, you know, you have to create an environment that you're happy with. So what happened is is me and my wife, when we got married about five, six years ago, uh, we had an argument the third day into our marriage. We had an argument. And she said to me, well, that's just the way that marriage is. And I blurted back, says who? Says, who's making all these rules up for us? Because I don't, they're not here right now. Who's making these bloody rules up? You know, why can't we have a marriage where we dance in the bathroom? Why can't we have no obstruction in our way? Create this life, this house, everything we want around what we want. And, and that's what we teach our guys is get out of that clutter. Get out of that usual cookie cutter lifestyle that everybody wants to live. Let's start clearing things up. Let's start even crazy stuff. Like you want to achieve something on a daily basis? Emma goes, definitely. Okay, get up and make your bed. I stoop. get up and make your bed because that's what it's all about. You achieve. Everybody feels good when they start achieving stuff. The only time my disease will start is when I'm romancing, sat on my own, doing nothing, feeling down, feeling sorry for myself. Unclut to that past, unclutch to the future, live a clean life and move forward because alcoholism is very sneaky. I say to my guys, tomorrow morning, I want you to get up and I want you to go into the bathroom and get your toothbrush and brush your toes, not your teeth. You can brush your teeth later, but the first thing you do is get the toothbrush and brush your toes. And they go, okay, I'll try that, Dr. Rob. And after a couple of days, they call me and go, that's funny, Dr. Rob, that's funny. I'm still doing it, but I laugh every time I do it. After about a week, maybe 10 days, now it's a pain in the ass. Now they're doing it anyway because I've told them to do it, but now it's not funny. It's just getting, it's like it gets on the nerves now. But, you know, during the month, sometimes, or most of the time, they've had disturbed sleep. Sometimes a dog wakes them, sometimes Fonda wakes them, but they've not slept very well. They get up in the morning, they're groggy, they're they're like a hangover with, with tiredness. They walk into the bathroom and they brush their teeth. And that is alcoholism and addiction. You have to brush your toes every single day. So you have to unclutter everything. You have to make sure your surroundings are so comfortable, but yet you have a daily routine that you follow. Because if you don't, you will relapse. You have to strengthen, confirm, and repeat these things over and over again. And what most people don't know is when we go to bed at nighttime with an alcoholic or addict. The, the brain rests, the central nervous system rests. But you know, the next morning when I wake up, it's that alcoholic brain that wakes me up. and Unless I do the safe things to keep me sober, I'm going to relapse. Because the real brain in my head is the guy that will sleep with your girlfriend, rob you blind, steal your drugs and help you look for him, steal your car and burn your house down if you piss him off. You know, and I get up in the morning, I brush my toes every single day. And I do my mirror work and I do my prayers and I call a sponsor and I do all this stuff and by the end of the time I've done that, I'm walking out the door and this guy's going to be kind, he's going to be considerate, he's going to have an amazing day, he's going to stay sober, he's going to help another human being. And that's all well and good but have a guess who wakes him up the next morning. It's that addictive brain and you have to repeat and repeat and repeat.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so intervention is something I really haven't talked about much on this show uh, but I'm going to do that now i know you're experts in intervention as well but i think there's some misconceptions by the general public of what an intervention should look like what it should be based upon um, different than what they may see on tv
0: yeah intervention is a last resort i want, I want to tell everybody that if you can convince a loved one to get help I mean, m- most people come to us because they don't have to be locked away for 36 60, 90 days it's telehealth. They can do it in their own living room, in the pajamas if they want. It makes no difference. In fact, we find success rates go up when people are in their own environment, sat in their own clothes, their own pajamas and slippers. They open up more. So if, if, if everything else fails and there's still danger around the alcohol and addict, then you need to call for the intervention. A hint of intervention is only as successful as the preparation you do before. So it's all prepped the night before. We work on the same as the TV. It's called the Johnson model, which has been tried and tested over the world. But mainly is to put a family at ease when the intervention is happening. It can be a great tool, but it has to be completely monitored. So when I do an invention, we've done over 3,000 inventions over the last 30 years. What I do is I take full control of that room when the, when the alcohol the then it walks in. And everything that happens in that room is down to me. Nothing, no one drops a... A, a, a pin or anything without me knowing or me giving say so to do it, and you have to do it in such a way that once again the connection between the alcoholic to an alcoholic is so great that he, he has no choice but to come and follow you. But we do read the letters out, and but it's for the family. It's not for the the alcoholic isn't listening to that. They don't give a you know. But it's for the family. They get their stuff out. They get their sad stories out. They please ask the the, the, the son to go and help. But he's not listening to that. That keeps the family well. It's my job to connect with the, with the alcoholic. Had, I had a funny one, really, because we had a, a, a job on from a, a, a police inspector that called us and said they tried everything. They can't get the son out of the house. He won't go to treatment. And uh, they asked if we would take the job and they would pay you know more than they should pay, just peace of mind, because we had such a great success rate. So I thought about it for a bit and I thought to myself, if that was somebody coming for me, I'd wanted to be, you know, a recovered alcoholic, but strong, fierce, look angry, look very professional, but look mean. So I shaved my head. Now, it's might sound crazy if people are listening, but I shaved my head. And when I looked at myself in the mirror, I scared myself. And I thought, I'm going to go over there with my team. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to lay the law down because now we're desperate measures. And I'm going to handcuff him if need be. I'm going to drag him out of the house and we're taking him to treatment. And the family agreed, and we all agreed, and we were ready to go. I'm telling you, Trevor, we were gung-ho. And we bowled down there. We met with the family. Everyone said, you scare the hell out of us, you know, because I'm a big guy. And then a daily intervention, the client was sat in the house. I walked in. I opened the door. He looked at me and went, ah, okay, let's go. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, let's go to treatment. I'm like, I've just shaved my head for this. At least we can have a fight or something. or some." no, let's go. I know, I know, let's go. And we got him in the car and took him to treatment. I shaved my head and got all mean, but when people know they want to go, they want to know. And it's that, it's that relationship we have with the client going, hey, I know where you are, Jimmy, because I've been in your situation. And people have only got to speak to me for 30 seconds with my passion and my knowledge and, 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 and my, uh, you know, the, the stuff that I've been through is they can connect straight away and go, this guy's a no-nonsense guy who only wants the best for me. And I think that's why we, we win over our clients on interventions is because it gets real in that room. You know, it gets like I, I, I'm i so compassionate for the guy that's killing himself, and yeah, I'm so compassionate for the family who's watching him kill himself. And the understanding that you can play two sides at the same time so that everybody starts to get excited about the guy going in recovery. And then we give them three minutes to pack Nonetheless, let me go and feed the cat. Let me call the boss. All this is arranged before we walk in. So there's no excuse. Well, what about the girlfriend? All taken care of. What about the boss? Taken care of. We've called him. He knows exactly what's going on. And we give him three minutes to pack uh, under the supervision of one of our staff. We put him in the car and we drive him wherever he needs to go. I also have a private plane. So if he needs to leave the country or fly across the country, we'll take him to the airport. We'll put him in our plane and we'll take him there. And it's a done deal there and again. But you know what, Trevor? Most of it is us thinking it through and knowing it's going to be a success. Back to quantum physics, we walk over and we take the position of, of being a successful intervention. And I think all our staff are trained to do the same. We are walking out the door with the client. We are going to treatment. We are putting him on a plane. That's what's just going to happen. And nine or ten times the client's on board from the minute go. Absolutely. So, oh, again, I excited myself about that. No. That was awesome.
1: <laughs> it's great. It's great because <laughs> it's all it's all uh, absolutely true. Now there's a large demographic that I'm uh, re- re- really passionate about, and that's adolescence. Do you work with adolescents?
0: You know we do. I'm not, it's funny, really, because I'm 59, um, but my my age group where I hang around with guys in the 30s, I don't know why they just, I don't, but the guys that I work with usually are from the age of 12 to about 28 or 26. So I love working with with them guys. I have a great connection. I'm not sure why. I think it's because I'm still a kid at heart. You know, I do dye my hair blonde. I do wear stupid color scrubs and silly uh, covered sneakers that that the the kids wear today. It's just I live life crazy because I love life today. And I think that connection with them, Really, really sort of takes off. Plus, I have a great psychotherapist who works with kids. She's, she's amazing. That's her, that's her forte. And we have a bunch of guys that work for us that are, that are quite young as well. So we have that connection as well. But, yeah, I, lo- I love working with It's like I also teach at the you know, University of Texas, and I teach to, to young, young guys and young kids. And, you know, the redeveloping and the information that I can pass on to them, guys, is just priceless. It really is.
1: What's the biggest challenge with that age group? And, and let's take it up to 28 because, you know, brain's still growing and uh, sh- shifting and shaping. But what's the biggest challenge with that group?
0: It's shock you, Trevor. The parents. <laughs> the parents are the biggest challenge. You see, most parents come off, write me a check and leave and go, okay, so I'm out. It's like, no, we go back to the family thing again. Yeah. I was the guy that turned down Britney Spears for a million dollars. You know, I wouldn't work with her. She wasn't ready. I walk out. You know, and we find that with parents. that they don't understand what's going on. They just want to drop the kid off and expect us to fix us. Well, it doesn't work like that, you know. And they want to tell us what to do as well, you know. And they want to dictate what's going to happen. It's like it doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. But I think once we get on the level, you see, we have lots of rooms in our office. We have a music room. We have a painting room. We have an acting room. And we find out what the kid's into. So most people are into music of some sort. So we take them in the music room and we make sure we do music therapy to start with and just win their confidence on board and start talking their language. And once we do that, they're, they're pretty much like the adult. They'll buy in fully. You know, they'll take more on board than the adult will. And, and nine of 10 times, the understanding from adolescents are far more advanced than the adult because the adults block with fear, block with excuses, block with lots of failures. Whereas the youngsters seem to listen and take it on board and go, yeah if we can get them excited about recovery and excited about life itself, that's what we seem to to specialize in is people buy in a lot quicker than other treatment centers. Like again, it's the one to one when people come here, whether it be music therapy or painting or, you know, a horse, whatever it may be, it's always one on one. It's an inspiration. And I'm like, I'm like the dad, you know, I just, I just, you know, I I take him on my wing you see, the things that we do at is I'll fight toe to toe with anyone's disease, any patient that buys disease, literally toe to toe. Sometimes it's getting ugly, and they call me the Gordon Ramsay of the addiction world. Sometimes the curse words will start flying. It makes no difference, but I will separate the kids away from the parents. I will pull the kids to one side and say, Is this crap, or do you really want to do this? And they go, Well, what do you mean? Are your parents forcing you? Let's forget your parents. I'm not working for your parents. I'm working for you. They just pay the bill. I have nothing to do with that. What do you think? Do you want to do this? Because if you don't, I'll tell them some excuse you'd have to do this and the blatant honesty and the front with them. And I 10 times ago, Oh no, I want to do this. You're crazy. You are, you're just crazy. What's up, Dr. You're mad. I go, yeah, I'm mad. You bet I'm mad, For it's me <laughs> and you. Are we going to do this thing or not? And they go, yeah, let's do it. Dr. Rob, let's do it. And then I got them on board.
1: It's awesome. All right. So the last six months have been interesting to say the least, but, uh, on the subject of isolation, uh, how big of an effect is COVID having on people in recovery and more importantly, the people that are still in active addiction?
0: Alcohol sales in Texas alone, went not by 37% over the last six months. That tells you a lot. So the worst thing for an alcoholic and addict is isolation. So if you're still recovering and still getting help and going through it, it's probably the, one of the worst things you could be doing right now. Once you've recovered and living in a solution, hell, we go through this every day. One little disease isolation is nothing. That's our forte. We do that every day. But if you're still recovering and getting treatment or no treatment at all, let me give you some advice. First of all, you need to keep dialogue with somebody all the time. Get yourself a sponsor, get yourself a best friend, get yourself a closed mouth, you know, friend and talk to them on a daily basis and try and meet up at least once a week with social distancing, a cafe or restaurant where you can just chat a bit it's very important that we don't continue to isolate obviously we have to follow guidelines of each state but dialogue is one of the most important things because once we start to isolate crazy things happen to the brain so let me tell you we did a study on the, on death row and more inmates went insane before they were killed than anywhere else because they were isolated and the mind starts to play tricks on you. So you have to keep that mind active. You have to have relations with other people, you know, we're animals that need to communicate and socialize We're social animals. And we we, we can't forget that completely. Put your mask on, go out, keep six feet apart, you know, go to the cafe, have a laugh, come home, keep calling them every day. Just don't isolate completely and think, That staying at home means not talking to somebody because that's the um, the exact opposite.
1: Unbelievable. So true. Okay, what do you want to leave us with? What do you say to the individual or family that is uh, out there grinding through this and doesn't know what to do?
0: Guys, listen, I'm going to give you some information and I'm going to give you my phone number. Yes, my phone number, my personal cell phone number, because I don't want any family out there saying I don't know who to turn to. I don't want any alcoholic or addicts, I'm so embarrassed to call anybody. Listen, communication between all the family, any changes, you know, it's scary, guys. It really is scary. It's shameful to have, to have somebody who's suffering from that. But listen, there is help. Now, I'm, I'm not selling my service here because you have to pass an assessment. 97% of people we take fail. So forget ours. I'm talking about anybody out there. This needs to be done. Call somebody up. Talk to somebody. There is life after alcoholism and addiction and depression. So listen, if you want a 10-minute, 15-minute talk with me, it's not going to cost you anything. If you're the addict who wants information, if you're the parent seeking out what to do, call me. Don't call my staff or the office. Call me. On 214-600-0210. If you're the addict or alcoholic, I'll give you a pep talk that will scare the crap out of you and make you have a life beyond your wildest dreams. Believe me, I will change your attitude in 15 minutes. If the parents or loved one are scared and don't know where to go, call us. We will take you in the right direction and we will always be there for you. What we do is once a parent calls, I have two members of staff that the phone numbers will be given to you, and they are there for the rest of your life that you can call and chat to cost you nothing. We're never going to charge you for this. We just don't want anybody out there to feel they've got no one to go to. Robkelly.com is my website. It's two B's, R O ycom Once again, my phone number is 214-600-0210. Don't think I won't answer because I will. If, you, if I don't answer, I'm with a patient, I will call you back. I'm here for you. You're doing me the favor, by the way, if you call. I'm not doing you one. I just want everyone to have the opportunity that I have enjoyed.
1: Dr. Rob, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, best of luck in the future.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much indeed. It's been awesome.
1: Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound. Artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.